There was a man who we'll call Tom that was sent to prison for crimes connected with drug and alcohol abuse. Tom had a wife and children, but had been a terrible father, an irresponsible husband and provider. And, quite frankly, he deserved his prison sentence. After three years in prison, Tom was a changed man, and he was about to be released. He was not sure his wife and children would want him back, or even believe that he had changed. So he wrote his wife a long letter, concluding with this statement. I am coming through town on the 430 bus. If you want me to come home, tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree. If you do, I'll come home. If you don't, I'll stay on the bus, and you never have to see me again. Tom was very nervous, and his anxiety grew the closer the bus came to town. As it rounded that final bend, many of you know the story, captured in this classic pop song sung by Tony Orlando and Don, used to describe not only Tom's situation, but also military men and women in their journey home. The song, Tie a Yellow Ribbon on the Old Oak Tree. And I can't believe 
how many of you remember that song? The 70s, yeah, okay. How many of you have never heard that before? Okay, that's, that's good, it's, gen it's generational. I knew that was a risk today. I, I will do anything I can to help you remember what I preached on, so I hope this will help remember. Basically, not one yellow ribbon, but 100 yellow ribbons adorned this old oak tree. Tom was home. Tom was home. Today, you're wondering, what in the world does this have to do with Joshua? Today, we're going to look at a story in Joshua. The main character is a rascal like Tom, a sinner. But God has given her a promise. He said to her, tie a red rope in your window. And when I come through town, if I see that red rope, I will establish this relationship. I will befriend you. I will save your life. All you have to do is tie a red rope in your window. Let's find out what this is all about, okay? Some of you are just kind of shaking your head. That's okay. Joshua 2, it's page 170 in the Bible. In front of you, Joshua, the second chapter. Joshua 2. And we're going to read most of the chapter. I'll skip over some of the details and we'll go through this chapter. So, Joshua chapter 2. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go over to the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here to, tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me. I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly, you may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you, and when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. So she let them down by a rope through the window for the house she lived in. It was part of the city wall. Now she had said to them, go to the hills and hide for three days. The man said to her, verse 17, this oath you have made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your mother and father and brothers and your family into your house, anyone that goes outside of your house will, in the street, his blood will be on his own head. Anyone who is in the house with you, his blood will be on its own head, but if a hand is laid on him. Then he tells, basically, they go back to Joshua. It says, when they left, in verse 22, 
They went to the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. When the two men started back, they went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Two weeks ago, we started a series on Joshua. And the central character in each narrative we examined was God. But the central human character in this narrative is a prostitute named Rahab. And you may be here, you may not be an ex-con, you may not be a prostitute, but there's a question probably in her mind and is probably in all of our minds. A nagging question or a doubt, that doubt, do I really matter to God? Do I really matter to God? We can spend our whole lives questioning our value to God or anyone else. So the second question or the doubt, even if I do matter to God, can God even use me? Can God use me? Am I of any use to God? And I trust that by the end of the, today's message, we'll all be able to answer these two questions. Today, God's unlikely choice, God's unlikely choice, the unlikely person called Rahab. And we start by the first fact that we have in Roman numeral one that we find that Rahab mattered to God. Rahab mattered to God. In our value system in Eau Claire, we'd like to demean a person of ill repute or a prostitute. Rahab was not the person we think God would choose to relate to or, or have anything to do with. Why was that? First of all, she was a Canaanite. She was a Canaanite. She was not a Jew. She was a Gentile. She was a heathen. Jews did not have anything to do with heathens. She did not subscribe to the Jewish religion or custom. She was of a different race altogether. Now, we're, we're pretty familiar with racism and prejudice today. In fact, racism is in the headlines, especially in the news today. A, a photo of the governor of Virginia in blackface and somebody with a KKK outfit. And I, I know we need to be careful not to draw conclusions or judge. But that said, when we look around us in our country, we find that racism is alive and well today. All, and it's all over the world. Racism, it's a huge issue. When I was raised in Japan, we saw the prejudice of Japanese against Koreans. My, my brother was a missionary in Taiwan and he witnessed extreme racism against the original island people of Taiwan, which were the Hakka people. He looked in Europe, uh, racism in Germany against Turks or the Indians. When we visited Slovakia, we found that there was tremendous racism against gypsies. There's Bosnia with the Serbs and Croats and, and we see all kinds of, uh, of, of white supremacists rising up again in Europe. We looked at Africa in the past, the Hutus and the Tutsis. Even the, in South Africa, after apartheid ended, it didn't solve the issue of racism. Racism was still there. Closer to home, we have racism here against Mexican immigrants, Central American immigrants, Asian immigrants, African Americans, Hispanic Americans, Native Americans. We look at the economic inequality and we have racism or prejudice against people of different economic classes. But anyone that's different than us, anyone that's not from Wisconsin and supports Green Bay Packers, you know, it's just this prejudice. There's something about us, if there's somebody different than us, we don't like them. None of us are immune to racism. 
but God is. God created us all. Race did not matter to God. Rahab mattered to God. You matter to God. Secondly, why did she matter to God? Rahab was a woman, a woman, not a man. And deeply rooted through the centuries is the repression of women. That attitude did not really change until Jesus came. When Jesus came, he affirmed the creation of both male and female, both created in the image of God. He brought an equality with men and women. And Paul, the Apostle Paul said, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's men nor women, whatever. We are all one in Christ. Today we have this unhealthy polarization of man against woman, and woman against man. Man. It exists in our world. It existed way back then. It exists even today. God didn't create it this way. And thirdly, probably the most obvious thing that we are concerned about was Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab was a prostitute. Now, let's assume we're not bothered by God working through a Canaanite, a heathen, or, or a woman in a chauvinistic culture, but a prostitute? We tend to look at where people are present. God looks at people for who they can become. Future. Future. Jesus saw Mary Magdalene, who was a demonized prostitute. But more important, Jesus saw what Mary Magdalene could become. And when her life was transformed, she was changed. Do you know that she was the first person Jesus appeared to after his resurrection from the dead? Mary Magdalene. See, the Bible says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If God only saw where we were present, he would say it's hopeless. They're all sinners. They're all lost. It's ho I, guess, I guess they're worthless and unusable. But God sees us, each of us, with the potential of what we can become through the life-transforming power of Jesus Christ. Rahab mattered to God. You matter to God. Now some of us, good church folks, may self-righteously resist the truth that God cares for sinners. You can't love them more than me because I'm pretty, I'm pretty good, you know. Does God love sinners? That God cares for the prostitutes and the robbers and immoral and gang members and adulterers and homosexuals and perverted. But he does care. He does love. Interestingly, and the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. He wrote this passage to, to good church people. And we looked at it several months ago. And it reads, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now this isn't a comprehensive list. This is illustrative. We could take any sin that we've committed and put it in there. Any sin that we've committed. And then he says to them, because this, this whole list of these horrible sins, some we think are worse than others, but then he says to them, and that is what some of you were. 
That is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Wow. This, this horrible list of terrible sins. And he says, and that's what some of you were. But you were washed, you were redeemed. They're changed because of what Jesus did. And those that struggle with guilt or remorse, brokenness and broken lives should find enormous relief and re renewed hope just in this passage, but also in this story in Joshua. Because in spite of Rahab's sordid past, Rahab was loved by God. And if Rahab mattered to God, everybody must matter to God. And if everybody matters to God, then I must matter to God. By the way, I always get these questions because those of you that are looking at details in the story will ask the question, what were those spies doing in Jericho's red light district anyway? Did you think of that? Yeah, maybe so. Well, let alone entering a house of prostitution. They didn't have zoning laws back then, just so you know. Um, and very likely Rahab ran an inn and a house of ill repute. So these men probably went there to look for lodging and to spy by listening. And somehow Rahab discovered who they were or assumed correctly. So Rahab mattered to God. Secondly, Rahab believed God. Rahab believed God. Now, we're not sure at this point what that belief entailed, but in verse 11 she says, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. She recognized the one true God. In the middle of the, this, this godless idol-worshiping, immoral society. She said, you are with the one true God who made everything. Rahab, in spite of her background, in spite of her past, in spite of her present, was open to truth. She was open to truth. Now, people who are sinners and know it typically are not afraid of the truth. Yeah, people who, they know they're sinners, they just admit it, say, I, I know I'm a sinner. They, ha they haven't woven an intricate web of deception. They don't pretend. They don't bother to wear a disguise of respectability. They don't try to create a false shell of external goodness. Rahab was a prostitute. Everyone knew she was a prostitute. She didn't try to pretend otherwise. Truth, just, just cut to the chase. Give me the facts. She was open to the truth. And she had seen what had happened 40 years earlier with the Red, Red Sea escape, the, the, the incredible military victory over these two powerful kings. She was not stupid. She was open to the truth. And interestingly, in Jesus' day, in a similar way, the people most open to the truth were the sinners and the down and outers. They weren't trying to put on this facade of goodness. They just said, this is who I am. The rich and the religious, though, oh, they hung on to their religious trappings. They tried to look good. She was open to the truth. Are you open to the truth? Secondly, Rahab admitted her need. In, he, she admitted her need. In verse 12 to 13, she admits she is helpless to save her own family unless they intervene. Her need. Part of believing in God is seeing the truth and then admitting our need, our shortcomings. We, we don't... We don't like to admit our needs. I don't know about you. I don't like to, I don't let anybody know if I need something. But a belief in an all-powerful God to whom we matter includes admitting that we do not have it all together. There are needs that we simply cannot meet. There are just needs that we cannot meet. 
Judy and I have a friend named Steve DeBarn-Laban. Steve and his wife Arlene were with ministry with Camps Crusade for Christ with Athletes in Action. And, and Steve was a team chaplain for the Miami Hurricanes, the Miami Dolphins, and all the other teams down there. And he told us this story about a man named Dave Wanstead. Dave Wanstead was, was an assistant coach when they were at the height of their, uh, of their time. They, I think they were co-champions that year. They were doing great, the Miami Hurricane football team. And Steve got to know him just socially. He didn't get to know him. One day, Dave Wanstead asked Steve if he could, do, if he could meet him for lunch. And he said, sure. So they sat down and talked, and, and Dave got right to the point. He said, Steve... I'm in a great place right now. I, I have great success. I got a great family. We've got great health. I'm doing well financially. My career is taken off. It's just, I'm doing incredibly well. But he said, there's a big hole in my heart. There's a big hole in my heart. Could that have something to do with God? <laughs> oh, that's, that's a big opening. That's a big opening. And Steve got a chance to share with him, yes, that there is a God-shaped vacuum inside every person that can only be filled with God himself. Pascal, the philosopher, said that. And he helped him understand, and he, and he was able to lead Dave Wanstead to Christ to fill that hole with God, who only can fill that hole. Dave went on, of course, if you've known, he's a broadcaster today, but he went on to the head coach of the Chicago Bears and Pittsburgh and some other things, and, and today he's a sportscaster, but a great Christian man who came to Christ because he recognized his need. There was a hole in his heart. People try to fill that empty space with all kinds of things, but we need God. He's the only one that can fill that space. And Rahab admitted need. We also must admit need. Thirdly, Rahab listened to testimony. Listen to testimony. The Red Sea escaped, the destruction of the kings, all those things. And in verse 11, it says to her, she says, when we heard it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. Because she had heard the testimony of what God did. There's, there's power in personal testimony. Incredible power in personal testimony. One of our favorite shows on television these days is a show called Bull. Bull. Its main character, Jason Bull, is played by Michael Weatherly, and he's a trial scientist who assists defendants accused of all sorts of crimes to get off. And being that it is television, they always succeed. One of the main Aspects of the show consists of scenes of trial and is shades of Perry Mason and Ellie Law and some of those past shows that you guys all watch too. But the key is testimony. Testimony. This is what I saw. This is what I observed. This is what I experienced. It's personal testimony. There's something very powerful about personal testimony. People may live or die on the power of personal testimony. And people may live or die on the power of your personal testimony. Your personal testimony. 
When did God become more than a word to you? When did, when did God become more than just a word to you? What has God done to change your life? What's your personal answer to that? What answers to prayer have you received that confirm the reality of God in your life? What answers to prayer have, have confirmed God's real? This is how I have experienced God in the supernatural. See, this is what God has done. There's something very powerful about personal testimony. And when people see what God has done, what he can do, their hearts melt. There's no resistance left. There's no argument. This is what God has done, and he did it for me. Did it for me. People see change. They see the difference. That's why they believe. Every person in the New Testament, Gospels and Acts, every conversion of every person in the New Testament, the Gospels and Acts, occurred after some miraculous sign or wonder. They said, this is real. They saw the hand of God. They saw the hand of God. Rahab saw the hand of God. Is the hand of God operational supernaturally? in your life. So Rahab was open to the truth. She admitted her need, listened to testimony. And if we stop there, we can say, what a great story of belief. But literally, it's just the beginning. Not only did she matter to God and believed in God, Rahab acted on her belief. Number three, Rahab acted on her belief. Belief is not real belief in, in, until it's acted on. In Hebrew thought, intellectual belief and intellectual assent is inseparable from action. When Jesus said, believe in me, it meant intellectual belief, but it also meant spiritual belief, it meant commitment, it meant trust. To say, I believe in God, means nothing if it is separated from the action of faith and trust and submission to his leadership or his lordship. In James 2, 18 and 19, it says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Wow, is our action based on this belief or is it just intellectual belief? Rahab acted on her belief. And in that belief, there was a willingness to risk, a willingness to risk. Now this is quite a dramatic account. Rahab had hidden the men on the roof and the king commanded her to turn them over. She sent the searchers on a wild goose chase. If she had been caught, it would have been certain death. But Rahab took great personal risk and by that risk demonstrated a change of allegiance and a change of heart. Her willingness to risk. What are you willing to risk? What are you willing to risk? Does our belief in God require a risk? At the most fundamental level, we risk losing control if we submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's a risk, I'm losing control, I'm giving my life to Jesus. Say you do what you want with it. We may risk ridicule or persecution by those who think we're crazy. They may think we're crazy. Two weeks ago, an entire group of people went berserk over a 15-year-old student wearing a Make America Great hat. Why? 
because they hate the person and the ideals that it stands for. What if wearing a cross or identifying with Jesus did something far more intense and evoked a hateful response? Would we hide it? Would we wear our hat with pride? In some places in our world, identifying with Jesus can cost you your life or at least your freedom. We're not there yet in America, but all the trend lines points to being hated like Jesus was. Risk. We may risk retaliation by loving our enemies and praying for them. We may risk isolation in school if we refuse to party or attend another student's coming out celebration. And yes, there are coming out celebrations right across the street at Memorial High School celebrating a discovery of a change of sexual identity or gender hosted by teachers in their classrooms. Tell me there's no peer pressure to accept gender confusion and identity right across the street. We may risk losing our job if we insist on integrity when our boss wants us to compromise. We may someday risk our lives, as many today, dying for their faith rather than announcing it, renouncing it. Our belief is demonstrated by our willingness to take those risks. Rahab was. And sometimes our faith is demonstrated not so by, much by what we're willing to give, but by how much we're willing to give up. Rahab believed these messengers, these men are from God. She received God's messengers. There's always a question that comes up here. So it was, well, it, the question was, Rahab's lie an act of faith or was it an act of obedience? <laughs> Rahab lied. Is that okay? It was an act of faith or obedience. Rahab believed that the God of Israel was a true God. She demonstrated a change of allegiance by her lie. She felt she would be fighting God himself by turning these men over. And her lie was actually part of the protecting covenant in verse 14. It's kind of an interesting study. The, the, the covenant was our lives for your lives, the man answered her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when we, the Lord gives us the land. It's part of the covenant right there. Now, I'm not here to condone or condemn Rahab. Yes, she lied, but the Bible commends Rahab for her faith, not her lying. And Hebrews 11:31 actually says, by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. Rahab demonstrated faith by protecting the messengers of God. Now, I don't want to get into a discussion of situational ethics and when is it okay to lie and not lie, all those kinds of, when is it justified? But I can tell you this, that the founders of the Wesleyan Church in the mid-1800s hid slaves along the Underground Railroad. They broke existing laws and lied to hide and to save lives. That's what they did. Wesleyan Church was founded in the anti-slavery movement. Incredible legacy. The only church that was founded solely out of that movement. Standing up for African Americans. 
Corrie Ten Boom and her family broke the laws of occupying Nazi Germany when they hid and saved many Jews during World War II. Documented in the book Hiding Place in the movie, Hiding Place. Rahab's actions demonstrated her faith in God, that her belief was not just intellectual, but it, it was action as well. And Rahab gets another shout out in the passage in James 2.25. She gets four, four, believe it or not, she gets four biblical mentions in all. That's a lot. Four biblical mentions. In James 2.25 it says, And in the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Faith is proved by actions. Believe, show me by what you do. Works do not produce faith, but faith produces works. So willingness to risk. Letter B, Rahab repented. And where does it say that? Well, repentance means turning around, doing a 180-degree turn. She established a covenant, an agreement, a contract with God's people. She made a deal to prove her change of heart. Rahab wanted to be saved together with her family. Now, some may say she just wanted to survive. That's why she repented. Well, how many of us came to God just hoping to survive? Rahab wanted to survive, but she was also leaving her past, joining the company of God's chosen people to worship the one true God. That is repentance. And what was the seal of the deal? What was the seal? A red rope. A red rope. What was the sign to look for? A red rope. Now, I don't want to carry this analogy too far, but a red rope is a sign of a covenant agreement, just as the red blood of Jesus is a sign of a new covenant. God's agreement to forgive us, take away our sins, and to deliver us and give us new life. That red rope was a sign of promise. It was a sign of repentance, a sign of belief, a sign of faith, a sign of new life, a sign of safety, a sign of eternal salvation. That red rope signified that this Canaanite woman prostitute mattered to God. It tells us today that you matter to God. God loves you and extends that same red sign of promise. And when we get to chapter 6, we'll see that God fulfilled his promise to save Rahab and her entire family. Now, one final note. Roman numeral 4. Rahab was used by God. Rahab was used by God. It is obvious in this narrative that God used Rahab to spare the lives of his people. That was present. Also, she was used by God to encourage the Israelites to press in and possess the land. Verse 23 and 24 says, when the two men started back, they went out on the hills, forded the river, and they came and they told them what had happened. They said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Wow. Encouraging the people of God to move forward. Now, in addition to that, God used Rahab to bring salvation to you and to me. To you and to me. Seriously? Seriously, yes. If you look in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, 
Verse 5, we find the fourth account of Rahab. Rahab appears in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Rahab was the great, great grandmother of King David, through whom the Messiah, Jesus Christ, eventually came. I mean, God used a, a foreign woman, a prostitute? Yes. God takes the broken and he heals them. God takes the unlovable and makes them lovely. He takes the dirty and makes them clean. God takes the sinner and makes them holy. If anyone is in Christ, St. Corinthians says, he is a new creation. And then God turns around and fills this new creation with himself by his Holy Spirit. And he uses them to demonstrate his love, his grace, and his glory. As we put our faith and trust in God through Jesus, no matter what you've done, no matter who you've been, no matter where you've been, you matter to God. And God wants to use you no matter how unlikely a choice. Let's bow our heads, please, in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have demonstrated your unconditional love and forgiveness and your ability to take what we would consider a throwaway life and use it in amazing ways. God, we don't profess to understand all of that, but we just want to thank you this morning. And I pray, Lord, that you'll speak to those that, first of all, have never known Jesus, that you would speak to them of your love and grace and your willingness to forgive and enter into relationship with every person. And Lord, those that feel like they're they're, they're soiled garments or they're not good enough or they, they've made too many mistakes or they've had too much sin and whatever it is, Lord, they have a past, which all of us have. They, they would realize, everyone would realize that, that we matter to you. That we matter. And you will take our life as we give it to you. And you'll, you'll enter our lives and change our hearts and fill us with yourself. And not only will you give us salvation, but you'll use us. I pray, Lord, that you'll envision us in a new way. How you can do that today. No matter how unlikely a choice. Let's stand, shall we?